would invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at a couple of verses in chapter 1, John chapter 1. The page reference should be listed for you in the bulletin if you want to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you. I think it would be true that if you gathered a group of pastors, a group of preachers, and you took a poll, they would probably all tell you that preaching a sermon or a homily or a meditation on Christmas Eve is kind of a challenging thing to do. We all know what we're going to be talking about. And then on those years when you have Christmas on the Sunday after Christmas Eve, how much more so? Everybody knows what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's probably not going to be a sermon on the Ten Commandments. We're probably not going to be talking about David and Bathsheba. Probably not going to be talking about Jesus feeding the 5,000. We're going to be talking about the incarnation, the Lord Jesus coming into this world. Hopefully it will dovetail in a helpful way for what we talked about last night. Again, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1. Just a little bit further down from where we were looking last night, beginning in verse 14, reading down through verse 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Let's pray together. Father, on this Christmas morning when we come to your word, we would pray the same thing that we pray every week. That you would send the Holy Spirit into our midst and you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see what we need to see from this portion of your word. Teach us, Father, what we need to know. Grow our faith. Strengthen our faith. Enable us to love you in greater ways, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And give us the opportunity and the desire to humbly serve you for the glory of your kingdom and the building up of your church. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther famously and boldly declared that justification is the article, it's the, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. If we lose it, he said we lose Christianity. John Calvin said something similar. He said that justification is the hinge on which religion turns. Now, while there is truth in both of those statements, I would say this to you. Without the incarnation, we don't have justification at all. It might be appropriate to say the doctrine of the incarnation of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is the article, is the doctrine on which the church and Christianity, our redemption, our salvation, grace stands or falls. And that makes what John says here in verse 14 of chapter 1 so very important for us to know 
and to believe ourselves. It has been said that preachers from time to time can use a lot of hyperbole, can overstate things, and perhaps that is true. Heard recently a pastor say that John 1 verse 14 is perhaps the most theologically important verse in the entire Bible. Been reflecting on that over this past week. Maybe that's just hyperbole, but maybe there's some truth to it. Because in John chapter 1 verse 14, John states simply one of the most profoundest of truths. The incarnation of God himself into the flesh of a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Herman Bavink, a Dutch theologian, talking about the incarnation, said this. It is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in created beings. Eternity in time. Immensity in space. Infinity in the finite. Immutability in change. Being in becoming. The all, as it were, in that which is nothing. The mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. On this glorious morning when we celebrate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want us to take a few moments and look at three things from these verses. First of all, why the incarnation is so important. Secondly, what happened at the incarnation. And thirdly, what happened because of the incarnation. So first of, it, first of all, why the incarnation is so important. To understand the importance of the incarnation and why it's so important, we need to remember why it was needed. The problem that necessitated it. We talked about this last night. Just a short recap. The beginning of Genesis tells us the story of creation. That God created everything. And he created mankind. And he looked at it and he said it's very good. And Adam and Eve, the first humans, were given all that they needed to live faithfully and joyfully in the garden. In communion and fellowship with their God and creator. But they wanted more. They wanted to be like God. And so they disobeyed and they ate from the one tree that he told them not to eat from. And in doing so, they plunged the entire human race into darkness, into sin. Having forced now all of humanity, humanity to deal with the consequences of their and our sin. And Paul said that as a result... We are now dead in our trespasses and sins. And by nature, we are children of wrath. By nature, we are sinners. That's the problem. God said that his standard for eternal life was nothing short of perfection in love and obedience to him. Complete and perfect faithfulness in all things, all the time, without exception. Not sinning once. Not in our thoughts, not in our words, not in our actions. Not even once, not even something that we would consider to be small. And because of the fall of Adam and Eve, it is now impossible for us. Because we are now born with a sinful nature. We are dead in our sins. You see the problem. The only one way to have eternal life with the Lord is to do something that we are incapable of doing. 
So that means that there's only one solution. The only solution is that God Himself could come into our world, become one of us. John 1, 5 says, The light came into the world, it came into the darkness. God in the person of Jesus Christ would do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus would live a life of perfect love and obedience according to the word of God. And then he would willingly offer to be sacrificed to pay for our sins. He would give his record of perfect and unblemished righteousness to us. It would be credited to us. We get what we could never earn on our own. And we are brought out of the darkness into the light, into eternal life. This is why the incarnation is so important. The problem was insurmountable and there was only one solution, the incarnation. John continues on to tell us more about the solution by telling us what happened at the incarnation. Look at the beginning of verse 14. And the word became flesh. John has already been talking about the Word. He began in chapter 1 speaking about the Word. He began the Gospel by telling us that the Word was in the beginning. That the Word was with God. That the Word is God. That all things are made through the Word. And in the Word is life. The Word is the light of men, he says. The light that shines into the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. And he tells us that the Word is Jesus Christ. And the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. Became a human being. Took on human nature. But because He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, He was not born in sin like we are. Without laying aside His divinity, He became fully man. Completely divine and completely human. Fully God and fully man. And that meant Jesus was the perfect and the only solution to our problem. Because Jesus is fully God, He's able to live a life of perfect love and obedience to His Father. And because Jesus is fully man, He is able to bleed and suffer and die on a cross. 17th century English Puritan Stephen Charnock put it this way, What a, what a wonder that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world, that the same person should have both glory and grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity, that a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering creator be a weeping babe and suffering man. The incarnation astonishes man upon man on the earth and all of the angels in heaven. The Word became flesh. That's part of what happened at the incarnation. The Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. But notice John tells us something else that happened at the incarnation. He goes on in verse 14 to say, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, some of you know that that word that is used there, dwelt, literally means that he pitched his tent in our midst or he tabernacled with us. And when the Jewish people would have heard this verse, when they would have heard this idea that the word became flesh and dwelt with us, tabernacled with us, their minds would have gone back to the Old Testament story of the tabernacle. Israel had left Egypt 
While wandering in the wilderness, God had given them specific instructions for building a mobile tent structure that would serve as a temporary type of temple where they would be in the presence of God and they would worship him. It was 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. It had three areas. It had an outer court where the sacrifices were made by the priests. It had a middle area called the holy place. And then there was an inner room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. That was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. The presence of the Lord would descend on the most holy place, the holy of holies. And as the tabernacle was placed in the very center of Israel's camp, it was a picture of the Lord dwelling in the very midst of his people. He was tabernacling with his people. And John here in John 1 verse 14 is saying that the Old Testament tabernacle was pointing forward to Jesus. Now the ultimate tabernacle had arrived. Jesus Christ, God himself, was tabernacling with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. Became one of us. Dwelled among us. Tabernacles with us. Do you sense the enormity of this? It shows how much God loves his people. He became one of us and then dwells with us. This is what happened at the incarnation. The word became flesh. The word dwelled among us. But what happened because of the incarnation? Well, John goes on to tell us several things that happened because of the incarnation. As a result of the incarnation of Jesus coming into the world of the light shining in the darkness, he goes on in verse 14 to say, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. That's part of what happened at the incarnation or what happened because of the incarnation. The glory of God was displayed. The glory as of the only Son from the Father. It was glory of Jesus' uniqueness, the one and only Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Glory as we see Him coming from the Father with a mission to secure the redemption of His people. Glory as we see Him fulfilling all of the Old Testament promises and prophecies of the Messiah who would come. Glory as we see Him accomplishing the purposes and promises of the Trinity that have been secured in eternity past. But there are many who don't look at Jesus with the eyes of faith. And they don't see Jesus' life here on earth as very glorious. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, recognizing the fact that you have to see Jesus through the eyes of faith to see his glory, wrote this. Jesus preached to a few people in an outlying province of an ancient, long since vanished empire. Even there, he was not often in the capital, the center of affairs, but in a remote country area. He taught just a few people, gathered a few disciples, did an uncertain number of miracles, aroused a great number of enemies, was betrayed by one close follower and disowned by another, and then died on a cross. Where's the glory? We think of glory as great achievements of notoriety and success and medals and trophies and great wealth. But Jesus shows us what true glory looks like. 
It is a life of loving and faithful obedience to his, to his father and a humble, servant-hearted, sacrificial death for the sake of others. The creator of galaxies in the universe was born in a manger. He lived a life of poverty and sorrow and then he died on a cross, accomplishing for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves and he secured forever our redemption. And in him and in his work, the glory of God is displayed. That's part of what happened because of the incarnation. But John goes on and says more. Not only was the glory of God displayed, but notice what he says next in verse 14. Full of grace and truth. Truth and grace. Grace and truth. It's a phrase that's used repeatedly in the scriptures. Here, John is using the phrase to talk about Jesus. The glory of the incarnated Jesus, full of grace and truth. I think John is still thinking about his Old Testament scriptures as he writes these words. He's thinking about that time period of the tabernacle still. When the Shekinah glory of God dwelled with his people. And in the same section of the Old Testament, we read a story about Moses asking God, begging God to show him his glory. To show him the glory of the Lord God Almighty. And God told him, you can't see my glory for all that it's worth because you would be wiped off the face of the earth in an instant. But I will hide you in the cleft of a rock. I will cover you as I walk by and after I pass by. You can look and not die. We have a record of what happened in Exodus chapter 34. We read there that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The Lord abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The word steadfast love is the word chesed. It means covenant love. It means grace. And the word that's used there for faithfulness is the Hebrew word that can also be translated truth. The Lord abounding in grace and truth. And now John is pointing to the glory of God, the God of grace and truth. And he is saying to us that the incarnated Jesus is the one who is full of grace and truth. He even goes on in verse 17 to say grace and truth came to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth. He is the word of God. He is the truth of God. Everything that is right to be believed is through Jesus Everything that is right to do is through Jesus. In Jesus, everything that we must believe and every way we are to live is shown to us. And Jesus is grace. His birth, his life and death and resurrection secure our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to earn it or to merit. It's something that is given to us freely without us deserving it. It is purely by grace. Jesus is the perfect demonstration of God's grace to us. 
Simply by believing in Him, we get eternal life. That's another thing that happened because of the incarnation. Truth and grace are revealed to us through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But John goes on and says one more thing that happened because of the incarnation. We see in verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Literally it's translated as grace instead of grace. Or grace in place of grace. We've read about God's grace to His people in the Old Testament. All of the blessings. All of the promises that He gave to them. And John is now saying to God's people with the arrival of Jesus, we get grace that is abundantly more than any grace God has shown to His people. It is grace upon grace. More abundant grace than all the other graces God had shown to His people. There's a true story told about an 18th century boy who was born in England. He was born into a Christian home. Here's how the story is told. For the first six years of his life, he heard the truth of the gospel. He believed it, was dearly loved by his parents. Sadly, Both of his parents died while he was still a young man. The orphan boy went to live with his relatives and was maltreated, abused, and ridiculed for his interest in Christ. The orphan couldn't tolerate the situation, and though he was still a boy, he fled the home and joined the Royal Navy. In the Navy, the boy's life went from bad to worse. He became known as a brawler, was beaten many times and participated in keel-hauling some of his comrades. Now, I didn't know what that word meant. Keel-hauling, I had to look it up. It was a form of punishment for sailors at sea. The sailor would be tied to a rope that was anchored beneath the ship, and then he would be thrown overboard on one side of the ship and dragged under the keel of the boat to the other side, and that would be done over and over again until the sailor was punished or killed. And they're saying that this boy participated in keel-hauling some of his comrades. Finally, while he was still a young man, he deserted the royal army and fled to Africa, where he attached himself to a Portuguese slave trader. There his life reached its lowest point. There were times when he had to eat off the floor on his hands and knees. He escaped and then attached himself to another slave trader as the first mate of his ship. But the young man's pattern of life had become desperately depraved. He stole the ship's whiskey supply, got so drunk that he fell overboard. He was close to drowning when one of his shipmates harpooned him and brought him back on board. As a result of the harpooning, the young man had a huge scar in his side for the rest of his life. He could not go much lower. Finally, in the midst of a great storm off the coast of Scotland, after days and days of pumping water out of the boat... The young man remembered and began to reflect on Bible verses he had learned as a young boy. And he was marvelously converted. Shortly thereafter, he penned some much-loved words in a beloved hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind. But now I see. 
The young boy was John Newton, who became one of the greatest preachers of the gospel in the 18th century. It's a picture. It's a picture of grace upon grace. And maybe you're someone who knows the depth of your sin. And you've convinced yourself that God could never forgive you. Or God could never forgive you again. With Jesus, there is grace upon grace. You aren't able to outsin the grace of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, His grace is sufficient. His grace is enough. Rest in the message of grace upon grace. Or maybe you're a Christian in need of some motivation. Motivation to lean and to fight against your sin. Then look at Jesus. Look at all that He went through to secure your redemption. To secure your adoption into the family of God. Look at His life in this world. All that He endured for you. Look at all the grace that He has given to you. Grace upon grace. And let that melt your hearts. Let that become the motivation and the empowerment you need to lean against your sin. For His sake. This is what happened because of the incarnation. The glory of God was displayed. Truth and grace were made known. Now we are given grace upon grace. Let me just finish with this, with these two last comments. For those of us who are here who find this to be a, a time of joy, a time of celebration, it's a joyful season, enjoying time with family and friends, festive decorations, baking delicious goodies, wrapping and unwrapping desired presents, then remember, all of those things are meant to point you to the incarnation of our Savior. All that was accomplished because of it. The truth and the doctrine of the incarnation is so deep. It's so mysterious. It's so wonderful. You can never reach the bottom of understanding it. But you can try. Use this season to plumb the depths of the riches of the incarnation. And for those for whom this season is more painful than joyful, more discouraging than uplifting, more sorrow than happiness, then remember, during this season, the Lord, the Lord lifts our focus off of our circumstances in life and focuses us on the incarnation of our Savior. And because of the incarnation, we get the good news of the gospel of God's grace upon grace of His steadfast love. And that is a good news of great joy for us that transcends even our circumstances in life. Rest and trust in the truth of the incarnation of your Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would put a yearning in each of our hearts. A yearning to know more, to understand more, to believe more. This wonderful truth of God becoming man. Of the Word becoming flesh. Of you tabernacling in our midst. 
put a yearning in our hearts to understand that in greater ways, Father. Not simply that we would have more knowledge, but that it would drive us to a deeper love for you. And that that would drive us to a deeper commitment and faithfulness to your word. In the midst of celebration and sometimes sorrow, lift our eyes. Lift our eyes to what is true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.